Hello, legends. Today, I catch up with Stella Concha, the CEO of national recruitment search firm, Rio Group. Stella is also the co-founder of C-suite executive development firm, HiveQ, and is an expert in self-mastery on a mission to help the world find more alignment between their heart and their mind. She brings these practices into all her companies and it's been a huge part of her success. Stella and I discussed imposter syndrome and how to overcome it, the importance of your ego and how to build a healthy perception of yourself and how your business needs to become a tool for your team to become their best version of themselves. Always remembering a person's life is the most important thing in their life and making sure you're aligned with that. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Stella. Thank you, Daniel. So you're a bit of a like a wizard amongst a few things. You've got a, a very successful um, recruitment firm uh, called, called Rio. Um, you're a university lecturer, is that correct? I'm a guest lecturer. Guest I lecturer. I also sit on a board of a university school. Yes. And and you, you what do you speak mostly about? Self-mastery. Okay. And you have a book on self-mastery, which is called – I was actually going to ask you – Stella actually just gave me her book. It's called Stone Heart, Light Heart. What does that mean? Go read the book, Daniel. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it's in the book, but I'll find out. So, we might cover that today. Okay, cool. And and you also have a um, – I assume ties, in, ties into this whole self-mastery thing. You've also got um, – is it, how would you describe, is it advisory, uh, executive coaching or executive advisory mm, firm or no, how? It, it's executive development. Okay. So executive leadership development for the C-suite. And, and tell me more about that. So that business is called HiveQ and we mainly work with say top 100 ASX C-suite um, or global C-suite and we provide I guess you could say education or executive development learning in peer-to-peer networks. So rather than them, you know, going to say INSEAD or Harvard where they have to go and get some advanced learning in say one of the um, seats that operate within the office of the CEO, we would create learning environments for them across those key areas of thought. So it could be anything from front stage leadership to backstage leadership. So front stage leadership might be their their governance practice or it could be their strategy and vision practice or how they lead, how they think about the futurist perspective. So just think what a CEO would need to deal with. And then their backstage leadership is more around alignment to self, how they can navigate their corporate career and their family and their health, brand, what people think of them how they curate the story around their leadership. So all of these things are so important. So I'm not an expert in front stage leadership. (laughs) I kind of outsource that. But when it comes to the backstage stuff, that's what I've written my book about. And um, that's the work that I do with universities at the moment. Okay. So you're very passionate about basically being the best you. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and how did you get into that? Because what, what, so what came first? Was it that type of stuff or was it your recruitment firm? Oh, it's just started way before that. So when I was five, I knew I wanted to, what I wanted to be in my life. I wanted to be a doctor. They used to call me Dr. Goose. And, um, <laughs> uh, the story goes like this. I knew my life was going to be a clinical, clinical life. I wanted to support people. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be in the, the, 
the arena of healing. And then one day my dad, who is actually a refugee, he fought in the Greek-Turkish Cypriot War in uh, 78, came to Australia just before he was 30, got married, had me. Um, couldn't read or write English and, you know, one day I was, I was 12 years old, one day mum said to him, you know, go do something with your life, Harry. His name's Karal Lambos, but they call him Harry. Go do something with your life. You know, go and learn how to read and write. And he went to the local library and came home with a book and he couldn't read or write. And he said, Stella, can you read me this book? And I was 12. And the book that he brought home changed my life because I had to read it to him. And that book was uh, Bring Out the Magic of Your Mind by Al Corrin. And I learned at that young age of 12 that what you think, you create. I learned that your word is your wand. I learned that your mind is the most powerful broadcasting system that you own. I learned that love is your birthright. I learned that the things that you visualize, you can manifest. And I was 12. And I know that maybe the adults that could be listening to this might think this is hocus pocus or hullabaloo, but at 12, you don't question these concepts because at 12, your brain is highly impressionable and that which you read, you believe. So I started using the techniques at school. I used to sleep on my study notes. (laughs) And then, you know, by the time I was 18 going through year 12, I had read hundreds of mind power books. I was a master back then. So I thought, okay, well, I'd love to dedicate my life to this, but I ended up starting life in a clinical career. I ended up getting, doing a medical undergraduate, winning the University of Health medal and, you know, doing my internship year at at Westmead Hospital. And it wasn't till my internship year that I realised how much I hated what I thought I loved. So if I go back to the question, how did you start all of this? Well, actually, it started a long, long time ago. And I've just been on a, an, an adjacent journey in corporate, applying the things that I've learned, deepening the ideas, questioning whether they're real, creating real examples to see how far I can stretch these concepts to prove to myself, is this shit real? It's real. Well, I believe it's real too, especially the what you um, uh, like. Your word is your want, and what you think you create, like that's pretty much how I do everything. Yeah. Like I, I really, I th- I believe that. I think if, you know when you when you visualize it so much, you want it so badly. You know, you just find ways. Like you, you find the path to the thing. And I also think when you tell people, it's the most important thing you can do. If 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 no one knows what you're doing and no one's, you know, you haven't got that outwards pressure, but also that outwards help because people then help you when they know, you know, what your vision is, what you're doing. You, you just, nothing ever gets done. I, I really think when you want something, you scream it to the world and, and then show them that you're trying to do it. You know, don't just scream and do nothing. You should back it up. Your, your words need to be backed up. And when you do that, I, I think that's the most important part is that starting part. And then following through with it. Yeah. So I call that clarity of thought plus empowered action. That's that's the yeah. uh, the, the simplified educated way to say <laughs> to say oh. Oh, I really want it. <laughs> <laughs> I like I really want it. <laughs> and and so with all that in mind then, how did you obviously you wanted to be a doctor, you got there, you didn't think that was for you. 
How did you think, how did you get to the point where, okay, well, maybe business is for me? I didn't. It's, you know, I'm a mistake. <laughs> when I think about my career, everything that's happened to date has been um, guided by, I call it my heart. That's a little bit, mm, that's a little bit soft, but actually it's quite hard to do. Because when I quit in my internship year, I had um, everything, everyone was against that decision because it costs a lot of money to go to university and how can you quit at the end of your uni degree? How can you quit your career before you started it? Especially the daughter of two immigrants or oh, at least absolutely. one Absolutely. And they were both uneducated. Mm. I was the first educated kid um, in their family. But I had to look inwards and really ask myself, well, at this, if I don't like what I'm doing, well, I can't apply I had enough knowledge to know I can't apply another five years to giving this a crack. So I had to take the bold stance to disconnect from that career and try something new. What triggered it though was my mum got cancer. So I was working and um, I actually saw uh, something in her throat, um, a lump in her throat and I said, mum, I palpated. I said, mum, I, I think there's something there. I think we need to go get that checked out. Anyway, she ended up getting, having cancer in, in her thyroid, quite an advanced one. So the way me and mum, you know, we look at that moment in time is that I had to do, I had to have that clinical career to be able to find that, her cancer. And she's alive and well now. But if we didn't have that moment, I'm not sure if she would be alive and well. So they always say there's a blessing in every moment and there's an opportunity in every failure or there's a gift in every intersection. And that was an intersection. And the gift was my mum, my mum's life. And I quit my job. And I took care of her for a while. And during that that time of taking care of her and really working with her at the level of her mind, because obviously I was already well instituted in cognitive behavioural therapy, neurolinguistic programming, all of the mind mastery stuff. So while she was going through her radio and her chemo, I started working with my mum, who was really my first patient, my first coachee, on, okay, well, why did you get this cancer? Where did this come from? What are the, uh, what are the trapped emotions and the trapped thoughts that have manifested in your throat as this ailment. Let's personify it. Let's talk to it. And she went through a, a probably an eight-month journey with me where we worked at the level of her mind to impact her body. This is why I couldn't stay medicine because we couldn't do that. Medicine's actually process-driven, it's clinical, it's deductive, it's detached and I don't want to work like that. Yeah, it's going down the list. Okay, this one, this one, this one. Okay, you take this drug. Yeah, That's it, right. It's just you, you get taught the process, follow that process. Don't veer. That's right. and there Especially are, in Australia. There are wonderful doctors out there and we need them. It's not me. Mm. That's not where I – that's not my gift. My gift is to work with people with their energy and with their spirit and with how their emotions manifest in their life, whether it be their career, their health, their marriage, marriage breakdowns, whatever it might be. So anyway, I started my first business actually in cognitive behavioural therapy. The business was called Mind Connection. I was quite young. Um, and just fresh, fresh out of uni, fresh out of my degree, and uh, the business was in Balmain, and I started working with pe people clinically using um, cognitive behavioural therapy, neurolinguistic programming, and I had that kind of clinical background, obviously, so I was allowed to do that, but <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. Couldn't run a business, didn't know anything about marketing. Chewed through all of my life savings. You know, I don't know 
if you know people out there where their parents work all their life to save some money. So when their children leave home, they've got some cash to go and buy a house or some cash to go and buy a car. So that was my mum and dad. Yeah, both mine migrated the same as yours. Same, right? They worked in fish and, you know, mum and dad owned a fish and chip shop all their life. That's where I was born, in the back of a fish and chip shop. You know, nothing special here. And um, that money, I blew it up in that business. I lost all that money. I lost everything, actually. And I was was living on like eggs bread for for a couple of years. You know, I really had nothing. Um, Until my dad said to me in his beautiful Greek Cypriot accent, let me give you some money. I am going to come and save you. Let me give you some money. And I said, listen, Baba, I don't want your money. You've been saving me all my life. I don't want your help. He's like, you're stupid. How can you how can you be a university degree graduate with the academics that you've got, with the knowledge that you've got in your mind, now failing in a business with no money? How can you not accept my money? And I said, well, don't you understand, Baba? This is the opportunity for me to learn about money. If you save me right now, I blow my opportunity to actually learn how to manage it. That was a challenge for him and I. We weren't good. He he took offence to it? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was hard. And how did he get over that? Time. Love. He's a father. We get over everything. I'm a, a mother of two. We, we love and forgive, you know. And it took me about a couple of years to recover from that. I wouldn't call it bankruptcy because I had nothing. You can't, you know, to be bankrupt, you need something to lose. And I had nothing to lose. I just had nothing. And um, I ended up finding a job desperate. I found a job at Johnson & Johnson um, in, uh, in medical repping. And that was the only company that would consider my clinical background. Like I had this clinical degree and then I had this one failed business in cognitive behavioural therapy. No one would really look at my academic records or my career experiences, anything. I was a rookie. I was in my mid-20s and I was still a rookie. I still hadn't found my feet. Anyway, I hated that job because I just felt like a coffee runner to doctors selling them drugs. I lasted two years and I quit. And somehow, somehow I um, fell into recruitment. And You know, I'm pretty relaxed in how I talk about my story because all of the somehows are actually you turning in. I turned in and I asked myself, am I happy? Is this what I want to be doing? And if the answer's no, I'm going to take the bold step like the fool and jump off into the nothing, into the abyss. Because what I've experienced over the last 20 years, and I've been an entrepreneur for 80% of my career, self-employed, run my own show is that you have to step into the unknown to find the opportunity. You have to step off the edge and allow yourself the opportunity to fail because in that failure is where the opportunity sits. That's where the growth sits. It's in the crack. It's in that moment of vulnerability. So I had learnt that every time I stepped off a cliff – that something positive would happen. So I stepped off that cliff. I fell into this recruitment job. God knows what it was. Had no idea what I was doing. But I got into it and I brought my clinical background and my bedside manner and what I had learnt into recruitment. So every candidate that I interviewed were my patients and I'd ask them those clinical questions. Why are you here? Tell me about your symptom. What does it feel? How does that feel? Why does that come about? And it was so remarkably different 
to what the industry had ever experienced that I became the number – in this organisation, I became the number one recruiter in APAC. And then the global financial crisis hit, you know, um, I was still doing really well but I wasn't quite aligned with the company. And again, if I'm not aligned with the company, I'm not aligned with myself. When you're not aligned with yourself, bad things happen. Your vibrational energy drops, sickness comes about. I knew this from my, my learnings, my studies. So I went, right, I'm going to jump off a cliff again. I'm going to resign without a job in the GFC and I'm going to start a business in competition to these guys. When you say you're not aligned with yourself, sickness could come about and things like that, what do you mean by that? How, 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 how does that happen? Or what are your theories towards it? Um, my theory, my theory is ratified through Brain Math Institute. So it's a, it's a, it is science. It's, you know, it's a theory, but it's not my theory. Um, it's science theory, which is when your mind tells you one thing, but your heart feels another. There is misalignment of mind and heart. And when I say heart, I don't mean the thing that beats. <laughs> I mean the emotional centre which people identify with their heart. So your emotional centre, if your emotional centre and your mind are in competition with where you want to go, you are misaligned, you have a discord. And when there are discords in your body, things manifest. Illness, anger, shame, frustration, guilt, all of those negative emotions and then it continues to manifest in your physical reality. Uh, car accidents, spilling coffee on your white jeans, uh, fights with your spouse. You know, you said thing, something you shouldn't have. Misalignments, disconnections. When you're disconnected with yourself and you allow that to – you actually allow that to grow, it grows into something material. In my book, I talk about, I have this idea, your inner world governs your outer world. When you master your inner world, you can master your outer world. And if you want to see what goes on and if you want to identify or you want to assess what's happening in someone's inner world, all you have to do is look at their outer world and have a look at the disconnections, at the misalignments, the language, and you can soon find out what's going on the inside. And that's not to be scared something to be scared about. I think that's that's awareness. So coming back to your original question, which is what do you mean when you disconnect? It's exactly that. Heart and brain, heart and mind, emotions and mind, thoughts need to be in alignment. When they're in alignment, you're strong. Your feet are strong. And so you feel that that's always been a superpower of yours. It's always, I need to stay aligned. This, this career is not right for me. I need to pivot. This role's not right for me. I need to pivot even though I need to start a company, even though it's a financial crisis and, you know, it, it, I think it's a horrible time to start a company potentially. I'm going to start one. What was that experience like? And, and how did you kind of kick off? How did you get your first clients? How did you? I had only two years experience in the game. I was a rookie and I was in my mid-twenties, you know, like I was actually a little ant. I was a little no one. I had good customers though. So my customers were big brands like Aldi and Revlon. They were my, my two biggest, my two first uh, um, invoices actually. Um, I, I think I had a very supportive spouse. My husband, Marcelo, I said to him, I love recruitment, but I can't do it for this company. I want to start, I want to start a company. Will you come into business with me? And he said, yes. Um, 
What was it like? I was too young to understand what it was like. You know, I talk about this overconfidence. I think in my 20s I was overconfident. I think I knew everything. Um, I thought that because I had the knowledge that that overconfidence um, gave me the energy to just keep going. As you get older, your knowledge turns to wisdom because you've got experience. And as you get even older, your wisdom turns to intelligence where it's just a knowing. It's a knowingness. It's an embodiment. So over the last 20 years, I've kind of done that journey, you know. I've embodied it. Um, it is an ex- it's an interesting path though because – uh, you, 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 even for myself, I can relate. When you're young, you're, you, I mean, for lack of better words, you're just stupid. You just don't know about the world. You, you have these huge expectations. You have these huge things, everything. Quite, you, you have that confidence because of that stupidity. I'm, I know I'm using butchered words, but it's almost like you know so little that you feel so confident. Yeah. You know? And like if you were to ask even me at the start of cover, you know, why did you start cover? I, I couldn't, I probably would be the same. I couldn't even tell you. Like yeah. I love business owners. I want to be around them. But other than that, it was like, why didn't I just get a job that was more, you know, it, it was, I think. You followed it, your heart. Well, I don't know. I just think you, you're young and you, you kind of, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It's almost that naivety into how difficult is this path you're about to start going to be. And, and as you get older, uh, even to me now, like you do definitely look at things very differently. The world kind of, your vision for the world gets much, much bigger and with, with the greater vision of the world, you have a better understanding of your place in it. Mm. And then when you know your place better in it, you kind of have a better understanding of like, okay, well, where do I want to go so I can make a path to go that in that direction? And I, I think that's like the, the – and I can imagine when you get to that wherever you want to go, you know, if you get there later in life, you can – kind of look back and you know the path. Like this is what you say, you, you know, okay, that's where you got to jump over that rock, zigzag, do that little swing, that swing. And you, you can just tell people like, look, watch that swing. And there's crocodiles under there. You've got to swing quite hard. You know, you, can, you, you know the path. Yes. So you've walked a path. The thing is, is when we deal with opportunity, and I call it the white space of not knowing, which is where opportunity sits. And you're good at that. You've created something out of nothing. You've created a few businesses out of nothing. So have I. Um, Is that just because you've walked that path doesn't mean that's going to be your future path. And that's pretty scary for people. And I really want to work with people to feel comfortable in the unknown because that's where the opportunity sits. Do you think, though, it's very dependent on the person, for example – like I would believe that, like what you said before, everything happens for a reason. Like the example with your mum and the fact that, you know, you, did, you weren't destined to be a doctor but you had some learnings in doctor, you know, in that space and then you were able to identify and help your mum's sickness and, and then help her. You know, everything happens for a reason but, but, but not to everybody because if you don't have the correct mindset or you're not looking for the positive or you're – you're in a woe is me mindset, the world's too bad, you know, everything's not my fault, it's everyone else's fault. And, you know, those people, I found anyway, those people, that, that things don't happen to them for a reason. In fact, it, it, because they can't find the reason and they just enter, the, they enter this world of, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, but yeah. they enter this world of like, oh, woe is me, communism's good. You know, give me everything for free because I'm not able to fight for it myself. Yeah. So... 
have you seen that or is or you don't agree with that? No, no. I think that I think that every being on this planet is a vibrational being first, is a spiritual being first. We're having a human experience and we've we've all got a certain level of embodiment of our own self-mastery, of our own self-knowledge and everyone is on their own individual unique journey. Some are far more advanced in their journey than others. Across 20 years in recruitment, what I've come to learn is that those that are far more advanced in their journeys tend to be the ones running companies. They tend to be the ones that are loved more, gain more opportunities, have more adventures, go on overseas trips with their businesses. They just tend to have and experience more because they've been able to deal with what I call the base level of existence, the safety and the needs of, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They've, they've dealt with the base stuff. It's dealt with. So then they're able to deal with belonging and purpose and self-actualization. That's where they're sitting at now. So um, They've overcome adversities and they're capable of doing it. Because some people... I think they everyone, just know themselves. I don't know. Everybody's capable of overcoming an adversity, but not everybody's willing to do it. Like business. Yeah. How many businesses don't work out? Yeah. Or, I mean, anything. How, how many dreams don't work out? Or how many small things don't work out? How many people don't wake up at 6 a.m. to go to the gym even though they were supposed to? You know, that, that small, that, 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 that section when your alarm goes off and you're like, oh, do I go on, do I not go? That's an adversity. You know, having that mental fortitude to just get up and go. Well, mental fortitude is, you know, mental fortitude sits in the level of the ego. I actually think we should talk about our mind and our, and our ego. So a lot of this is around your ego and people think that ego is a value judgment. Someone has ego, it means they're arrogant. Mm, it's probably the wrong mis- – it's a misrepresentation of the word ego. Ego describes your values and your belief systems as characterised by the way you think. So everyone has an ego. It's how we kind of operate our life. It's the projection of who we think we are. It's a very important part of who we are. But our ego is malleable. The challenge with ego is that, according to the Mazzy development stages, our values are set by the age of seven and therefore, depending on who your parents were, where you were born, what religion you were born into and what experiences that you had before the age of seven would dictate what your the hierarchy of those values. Then between seven and say 21, you begin to go through other different modelling and uh, relationship periods of your life and then you build all of your um, belief systems around that value. So I'll give you a very kind of rudimental example and I go through this in the book. The value of sex is a value and there are some populations in this world that believe that sex before marriage is a sin and you will go to hell. In other populations of this world, they believe that sex is free and it should be, and it, you know, free love should be experienced whenever you want, however you want. In some other areas of the world, sex should be, um, should be on offer from multiple spouses in, you know, multiple different marriages. There, there are, there's just different structures around the value of sex. Same goes for money. Same goes for education, yeah? This is what culture and diversity is all about. So depending on where you were born will depend on how you think about sex. And for me, I'm Greek Cypriot. I was told sex before marriage is a sin. That's how I got 
brought up. That's the religion that I was born into. My husband was brought up in Chile. His family is from Chile. The Latins, they don't have that value. They've got a completely different construct of sex. Their construct of sex is that it's love and it's a beautiful thing to experience with someone that you love. Now, one value, two systems of thought. So when it comes to the ego, we have multiple values that we have in life. We have multiple constructs around that one value. It's set by the time you're 21. So if you didn't have a good zero to 21, if the values and the constructs of thinking that were bestowed on you by your family, if they're not solid, then it's going to play out in marriage, in relationships, in parenting, in career. But but isn't that view somewhat dooming for the for for a lot of people? Because I mean, people can evolve their mindset and improve, and I assume that's what you do with 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 a lot of your clients. You help them kind you, of find alignment. Can people can com- change, yeah, completely change. You can fix that. That, that you can literally of. peel off. You can peel off your values and reorganize yourself. So you can sit back and go okay, I'm now going to do, I'm going to be the doctor of my own life. I'm going to have a look at all my values and all of my belief systems. Let's have a look at value one. What do I believe about that? I don't like that. I'm going to change it. What's my next value? I don't like that either. I'm going to change it. I like that value. I'm going to keep that belief system. So what self-mastery is all about is understanding one, your values and reorganizing your thought processes and reorganizing your belief systems around those values so they serve you. And you can keep doing that throughout your life. And there's so much power in that because if you can reorganise your belief systems around a value, which is the malleability of the mind, then you can change anything in your life. You can overcome self-doubt. You can quit smoking. You can commit to the gym. You can find the love of your life. You can do anything that is in alignment with your heart, whatever you want, so long as your values and your hierarchy of thoughts are structured around that. Because from thinking comes behaviour and I, action. I agree. I agree. And, and that, that that was to my point before. Um, so not everybody does see a, an adversity or a negative thing in their life as a positive because they're not looking for the positive. But perhaps what you're saying is that perhaps the people that – do find the positive are the people that are more aligned or are or have those stronger values or have worked on those values? I think the people that see the positive, and that might not be the right language, but I think that people that really welcome adversity, ha- I think these people understand that the entry point of growth is failure and they are okay with failure. So I think that they, you know, they, you know, they kind of perceive project themselves as resilient and that they've got good mental toughness. But if you peel that right back, what's going on here is is that they understand that all growth comes through failure. It's symbiotic in nature. When something destructs, something create is created. When a wildfire goes through a forest, there is a new sprout. When you go to the gym and you rip your muscle fibres, new muscle grows. Failure and growth, they're symbiotic. They go together. So I believe that those that have been taught or understand 
that the entry point of growth and therefore success is actually failure and they don't reprimand themselves when they fail. They don't, they don't get upset with themselves. They forgive that moment and they're able to bounce back and grow. Those people tend to have longer careers, longer opportunities, bigger, wider, expansive lives. Because, because they, they grow they from welcome, failure. They have a good, solid, healthy, loving relationship with failure. Yeah. And it's important to be able to learn from the fact that, okay, what went wrong? What could I have done better as opposed to what Why? some people do, which is, oh, I failed because I grew up in, a, in bad or I, I'm, a, I'm a this or I'm this sex or I'm this sex or I'm this sex blame, or I'm, blame, you know, blame, it's, it's blame, yeah, it's blame. just the world yeah. is, it was the world's fault. Yeah. It's, not, it's not my fault. Yeah, yeah. It's the world's. Like that, that's a sickness. everything to yeah. everyone else. I'm not going to take ownership of everything. You yeah. know, we, like cub members, sorry, just yeah. like I speak to business owners all day and, 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 and not just business owners, but, but I speak to accomplish people that are pushing f- f- to, to accomplish big things in life. And very rarely will I come across someone that is, is like they're blaming. They almost blame the world. They blame people. More often than not, I'm coming across people that are owning like yeah. that happened because I could have done this better or I shouldn't have had this person doing this. That was, you know, it, 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 they have more ownership over their life as opposed to – and, and I assume that's a sign that they're feeling more powerful. Like I'm strong enough to own this as opposed to – Oh, I couldn't do it. It was too hard. You know, I just, I couldn't find the time with my partner and my whatever. And, you know, it, it, excuses. It, yeah, excuses, any excuse. I'm trying to think of ones I've heard of recently, but, but it, it, any excuse, I, I think excuses are the, are the devil. Like, um, there can be things that get in your way, but to your point, they're, they're adversities. They're, they're things that could make you fail. You've got to jump over them. If you get, if you trip on it, well, you're going to learn how to, okay, you're going to have a better understanding of how to jump over next time. But if you jump over it, you're stronger for having gone through that, for having gone through that um, adversity. But that learning, I think, is key. Yes. And there's kind of a couple of things that you said there. The first thing that you said is they own it. We can't control anything in this world but ourselves. We can't control the weather, the economy, income being made redundant, getting sick, we can't, well, we we can control things to a point, but we can't control the external environment. The only thing we can control is this, number one, me. I can only control me. And so I look at that and I think, well, why aren't we all learning about me, I, self-mastery, my values, my beliefs? Why haven't we, the community, been taught, our children, our generation been taught, how do I put my hands around my life and how do I steer it? How do I emotionally control myself? How do I how do I self-soothe? How do I be my own coach, my own psychologist? Because if if the only thing I can control in this world is me, then isn't that the most important thing? The most. Sometimes I think and I, I say to myself, what if every human on the planet knew this? If they knew who they were, They knew how to master their thoughts. They knew what to do when the imposter came in, when they went into that, you know, negative self-talk. What would happen if we all knew how to manage that? I actually think we're going to have, we'd have a much better life. We'd have a much better world. Collective consciousness would improve. That's what I'm gunning for. That's my big vision. And you mentioned imposter syndrome. 
that's something a lot of business owners um, suffer from. Yes. Uh, you know, because it particularly, funny enough, it's particularly when they're doing better. It's like when I'm starting to grow and my business is getting bigger and like it's like, oh, like I'm meeting with these important people and, you know, I've got more employees who look up there and they feel like, oh, shoot, you know, who am I to be here? Or, or, how, how would you describe imposter syndrome and how do people get over that? Or, or I don't know if you get over it, but but if, if you how do you move past it? I had it. Um, and, you know, I still have moments where I, where, where I feel it and I tend to feel it at the junction of the next step of growth. So it's very common. Um, a story in my 30s, I'm not in my 30s anymore, but in my 30s, I really felt like the imposter. And part of imposter syndrome comes from, imposter syndrome is, I don't think I can, I'm not, I'm not worthy of doing this right now. I'm not worthy of where I am. I'm not good enough to do that job. I'm not good enough to be a CEO. I'm not worthy of the whatever you're experiencing in that moment. That's what the imposter syndrome is. It's about shame. The feeling of shame. Um, there are two things that I have experienced personally for myself, so I can only speak through my own lens and it obviously ratified through other sciences, is that to get over imposter syndrome you need two things. The first thing is you actually need some knowledge in whatever you're doing. You you have to have knowledge. So if you're, if you're a CEO, for, oh, I was a CEO, I've always been a CEO, in my 30s, I was uh, a junior, immature CEO, didn't really know what I was doing. So the first thing that I did to get over my imposter syndrome is I took myself to business school and I went and learnt about strategy. I went and learnt about fair process leadership. I went and learnt about strategic decision making. I went and learnt about partnerships and I've gone to school. So I had enough kind of humility to go, well, you don't know everything, girlfriend. Off to school you go. But the second part of um, imposter syndrome is detachment. Detachment from the judgments of others, detachment from the opinions of what people think of you and detachment from your own opinion of yourself. Detachment is the spiritual gateway, the emotional gateway to getting over imposter syndrome because imposter syndrome is a narrative. I'm not good enough. Said who? Mum? Dad? Business community? Prime Minister? Said who? Who told you that? Is that what you mean by detachment? Yeah. Yeah. So when we are, when we value the judgments of others, when we really value them, what we're doing is we're exteriorizing our power into the opinion of another person. So in this case, it might be I give you your, your model of the world based on your upbringing, based on your value system, based on your belief system and your whole construct of your life. If I give that, if, if I value the opinion that you have on me right now, what that means is I'm living my life through your life, through your lens. And there is nothing scary, there is nothing more scary than me, than that, for me than that. It's like constantly being judged. The thought that I have to live my life through someone else's lens. Now, there are so many people in your life, like you might have 200 unique people in your life that you are somehow connected to that you know, right? You, you, you'd probably have more. But the significant people would be close, close family, friend circle, boss maybe, colleagues. And if every time you did something and you worried about what 
that person thought or the other person thought, then you might have 10, 12, 100, 200 people's opinion of you controlling you. And do you think that's what causes imposter syndrome? Yeah. That's the seed. Because you don't have it when you're young. Did you have it when you're in your I in personally your never had it. We, oh. we, the only reason I know about it is because we did a – so we, we've got a few like um, really hot, like very uh, renowned therapists and, and therapy company owners in Cub. In Cub. And uh, two of them happen to be uh, friends of mine uh, just through Cub. And they've, spo- they've done a lot of talks in the community, for, for the community, um, about imposter syndrome. And so I've sat in a few of those talks and I've seen how people nod when they say things and, and I, I've seen how much it affects people. And, and uh, it, with our team as well, particularly our leadership team, I speak to them about it too and, and, and they say that they get it um, or some of them say that they get it as well. So I'm, I'm – There's the I, inner I critic em- and then there's the external critic. So the inner critic is the voice that tells you – I call it the bird. You shouldn't do that. You're not good enough. Stop. And then there's the external critic, which is, what do you think of me? Do you think I'm good enough? Oh, you don't think I'm good enough? I mustn't be good enough. So there's the internal and there's the external. And we have to, self-mastery tells us we have to detach from both because neither of them are correct. I kind of think like if if someone was to ask me, and definitely not an expert on the topic, but if someone was to ask me, how come you've never had imposter syndrome? I would just say, and this is, just completely honestly speaking, you know, I don't believe if someone else can do it, I can't do it. So if, for example, getting a technology company, it, I was going very fast. It could very well mean that I'm controlling a, a, a very big tech company soon, for example. I don't know anything about tech. I can't even use the settings on my iPhone. I really can't. But there's no way these other guys can do it and that I can't do it. So then after you've got that belief, well, if they can do it, I can do it then it's okay, well, I need to surround myself with people uh, that know this type of thing, that know how to do it. You know, I need to go speak to um, the, uh, uh, what do you call the commercial officer, the CEM? Uh, not the, Chief product officer. No, commercial, com- Chief head, commercial of, officer. head of revenue or whatever. Chief for, revenue officer. Yeah, for, for, um, for this company or the head of APAC for this company. You know, go meet the, obviously I've got the benefit of, of knowing a lot of people, but, but you know, go bring them around me, the, the co-founder of, of, of Finder. And, and you know, you get, they're already my friends, but, but really indulging in their friendship in the sense of, you know, I, I'd love to learn from you as well and learn from these people. And if you've got that self-belief, which I think is the first thing, that's kind of what I was describing before, but then, because you can't just have self-belief and, and no help, then you surround yourself with people that can actually help you learn and, and support who actually want the best for you too, then you can accomplish anything. I really think those are the two. But you've got a very healthy belief system around that. That's your belief system. That's how you navigate your life. That is yeah. awesome. That is your constructs, very healthy. So if someone, you know, resonates with that, they could change their belief system to something similar. Yeah, and that's the key. That uh, I really think that's the... That's the um, – not that I've <laughs> cracked the key. I've only cracked the no, key in no, terms of not, is, in, not getting imposter you. syndrome. The, but, the key but is I the agree, mind. Yeah. It's, it's just – if It's so powerful. It's just the mind, honestly. Yeah. And everything seeds there, everything. And so with your company, um, how have you brought these practices or, or these thoughts I- into your team, your clients? H- has it been uh, a contributor to the success of Rio? 
I think so. And do you want to talk a bit more about Rio actually? Because we haven't spoken much about it. Oh, that's it. okay. I, I think what we're talking about is really meaningful um, and it's timeless and it's universal, you know. But yes, I've brought it into Rio Group. It is absolutely the foundation of the organisation. It is threaded throughout everything that we do. In the beginning, I used to be mocked for it, actually. Uh, the business is 13 years old, so it's not – I'm not um, – it's not a fresh business, but it's not an old business at the same time. In the beginning, people would mock me and say, just listen, are you in the industry of recruitment? Are you here to, you know, elevate human brain? Like, choose a lane. And I'm like, no, no, I'm in the industry of recruitment. But the way we do it is through the mind. The way we, we train is to make sure that when you face an adversity in your job that we don't just go and do some post-mortem on piece of the process that got broken but we actually have a look at what was your role what was your thinking in that what was happening at that time so um it's absolutely threaded through everything that we do and we have very low turnover in the organization very low compared to the industry and it's very clear as the ceo of the organization to our employees that our role in their life is to commit to their development. What we do is secondary. I agree with that. I agree with that. I think that is the role of the business. Yeah. It's always the conundrum. Customer first or your people internal first? I think it's people. I think they're the same person for me. I don't. I think people come first. Explain yeah. your side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In. Well, look, the people in out. So I'm all about put, put people first, whether it's my customer or whether it's staff. It's that there is nothing more important in that person's life than that person's life. Nothing. Like everyone's life is their most valuable asset. So if that's true and I'm the CEO of an organisation that has multiple lives that I am responsible for but also we operate in the industry of people, then I have to think about that. I have to think, well, the most important thing in my customer's life and, and you know, my, my team's life is their life. So that's what I'm going to invest in. The process of recruitment sits underneath it and we do great recruitment because of it and we've become successful because of that but that has never been the focus. The focus has always been around the, that experience. And now it's becoming a little bit of a kind of like a movement, you know, Customers work with us because, yeah, yeah, we, we do good recruitment, but actually they want to be aligned with the company that also believes in self-mastery. They can actually do some interviewing of candidates based on values and beliefs and how's that going to manifest in the workplace and, you know, how do you assess them against some of these other lenses? Which takes me to where the future's going because this is where the future's going. Only 12 months ago, World Economic Forum put out a report around the 12, around the 10 skills of the future, the most critical skills of the future. The thing about this report is it said that 80 million jobs are going to be displaced in the next five years due to technology. Displaced, gone. But 93 million new jobs are going to be created from technology. So we've got a, we've got a transference of skills happening over the next five years People have to actually retrain their technical skills, their hands, their capability to work. And we've got a huge skills shortage at the moment in Australia because of this. 
We've got high demand in one area, no demand in another area and a displacement of, of capability. And it's happening at a rate that we, we cannot train at a rate that the displacement's happening. It's just so quick. Universities have caught on to this very quickly because they know that they have to address this for corporates. Big corporates are addressing this as well. But out of the top 10 skills, the usual entrants were there like um, uh, analytical thinking, problem solving, technical skills within technology. But there was two or three new entrants and those new entrants were self-mastery. They actually called the cluster self-management, stress tolerance, agile learning, uh, failing forward, mental toughness, top 10 skills. It's like, okay, so World Economic Forum are telling us we have to train as employees, as corporates, we have to train our people in this new area. This is not a hard skill area. This is this is what we've all known as soft skills. In fact, 50 years ago, this was woo-woo. What do you mean? You, how you, don't tell me how you feel. I'm not interested in how you feel. Now we use distributive leadership. We, use, we lead with vulnerability first. No one wants to be led by some perfect shining star. People want to be led by vulnerable people that aren't perfect because that's real. We're seeing a huge distribution shift in leadership. And that's why I work with unis now. That's why unis are kind of grabbing this and going, okay, we've actually got to, you know, material, we've, we've got to turn this into micro-credentials. We've got to start teaching this to the kids because they're going to be expected to be agile, mentally tough, strong leaders, understand who they are, change their values and belief systems at a click of a finger in two minutes when they're in the corporate workforce. I completely agree. Yeah. I think the kids are today are going to be some of the most damaged people. They need the most, I reckon they need the most self-help, self, um, self-mastery more than any other generation because, uh, I mean, I can see it with young people, like their perceptions of the world. Uh, I believe that they're wrong. They're just not real. And I reckon the second they get out into the world, it's like it's going to fly kick them in the face and being, being, um, the, the world is a tough place. I don't care what anyone says. It, it is tough. It, it, and it's not always bad things happen, you know. And if you think life's supposed to be perfect and your your world's supposed to look like an Instagram reel, you know, and supposed to be as happy and talented as a, what's the other Chinese one? A, a TikTok. TikTok. Yeah. If, if that's your world, you, you, you're going to get knocked out because the world is 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 a difficult place and you have to be strong to to not just survive. You've got to be strong to actually thrive in it. But hey, that influencer, that is a new job. That's actually a new job and they make big money. They make big money. It's mm-hmm. actually a job that you can do. It's not in corporate. It's a completely new It is. Land. I just don't know if it makes the world sicker or makes the world better. I'm pro business that contributes to the world and and look there are definitely an amazing influencers who, who do great things but there's a lot of influencers who will make people feel really bad about themselves in a way that they're pretending like they're making themselves look you know I think it's probably true of all generations though really like if you go back you know 80 years 60 years Hitler times he was the same you know you're always going to have people that are gunning for the light and there are people that will not gun for the light you know? Um, yeah. I, I think business, like I love what you said. You, business should be, uh, you should be focused on the betterment of your team's life. 
Like it's about their life and, and, and understanding that everybody cares about themselves. First. That's their first priority. Absolutely. It doesn't matter how, how kind they are, yeah. how whatever it is, they're caring about themselves first. And you need to understand that you, you need to create a situation where ourselves are codependent and can prosper together. Like um, it, w- by being together, me, me and Laura, by being together, we're stronger together. We, we're better off together. We should stay together and keep kicking ass because we, we're better off. If, if I was to lose Laura, well, I've, I've lost a big loss. If Laura's to lose me, it's the same. So, so you've got to create an environment where people are, I'm better off here. I'm better off here for my trajectory in my life. I'm better off here for my mental state and well-being. I'm better off here for my personal development. Business is a vehicle. It should be one. And your business should do something that contributes to this world, which – which uh, is where I differ with the influencers, I feel. But but that, that's where sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know if you're actually helping young women or if you're damaging them or if you're actually helping. Same with young men. You know, they, they have not identical issues but, 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 but they've got equally as important issues. I think some yeah. of the mental sicknesses and the observations of the human mind and its projections into things like social media, social media is really just a platform that's shining a light on how bad it is. I think it's really. I think it's always been there. I just think that social yeah, media is it now just. It's, it's amplifying microphone. it. It's given it a microphone. It's mm. broadcasting it even more, which takes me back to the beginning. There is nothing more important right now in this world that we're living in than to know yourself, to master yourself, and be the CEO of your own life. Completely agree. Self belief and self mastery. I, 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 you've convinced me. I'm, I'm fully on board with it. I think, and I think our young people need that more than anyone. Absolutely. But everybody needs it. Yeah. Everybody needs it. Um, we do have to wrap up. Um, uh, to our amazing listeners, if you want to get in contact with Stella, uh, you can go to cub.club forward slash podcast and you will find uh, details there along with her book, which is called, or a link to it, which is called Stone Heart, Light Heart, The Intelligence of Self-Mastery. Um, and if you want to catch up with Cub on social, it's at Club United Business on Instagram. It's also awesome. Stella, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hope you enjoy the show.